Malcolm Puckett, um, if, you're, if you're newer to new life, you won't be familiar with him, but if you've been here for a while, he's been here uh, multiple times uh, in the past, and so um, he was scheduled for a visit, so we asked him if he would also speak, because before he was a financial advisor, he was a preacher, and so he's really talented in that area. Actually, he and I have something in common. I've known about Malcolm for a number of years, more years than I've actually known him, um, but we attended the same Bible college, um, Roanoke Bible College, which is now Mid-Atlantic Christian University, except I was there long before he was. But we did attend the same institution of higher learning. So, um, uh, and, and Malcolm's done a lot to help us here uh, at New Life, saved us a lot of money, uh, which freed it up for ministry. So Malcolm Puckett uh, with Christian Financial Resources. And so I'm going to turn it over to him, Malcolm. Look at God's word this morning. I wanted to share with you in looking at the book of Acts today. So if you turn to Acts 1, uh, we'll start there in a moment. But you know, the Bible has uh, several authors as far as who God inspired. And Luke is actually the author of the book of Acts. He also wrote his gospel, the gospel of Luke. So he wrote two books within the New Testament. And the interesting thing about uh, Acts is it's a book of history. So thinking back to school, some of you may be still in school or long years ago. But so what was one of your favorite topics? I'm just curious as a show of hands, how many um, math wizards do we have in the room? People who really loved math, okay? Few hands, okay, not a lot, okay. Any science fans in the room? Okay, people who really like science. All right, how about English? People who liked English, so you'll have a field day with me today uh, with my grammar. Um, and then how about history? Any fans of history? So that's a good show of hands. A lot of people like history uh, because history is an interesting topic because it's a topic of stories and things that have happened in the past, obviously. But one of the things about history is learning from it from the standpoint of what has happened oftentimes repeats itself, right? You can learn from uh, those who've come before us. So today, looking at the book of Acts, um, I just want to look at that because, again, it's unique among the New Testament books. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 21 of those books are letters, actually letters that Paul was writing to a church. We call epistles. Four of those were gospels, which we know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then there's that apocalyptic book out of Revelation, and we won't even go there this morning. But that leaves the one book of Acts. And Acts is a book of what the early disciples did in the church. And actually, it's a pretty long book, and it's a book of a lot of action, a lot of things happening, because you've got... A, a history of what the church did the moment Jesus ascended into heaven. So what's the value of that? Well, I think today it would be important for us to know what did the church look like in the very first century? What did they do? What were the things they valued? What were the things they didn't value? What would they do with their time? How did they organize themselves and follow the direction of Christ? So that's kind of where I want to look at today, if we would, um, by starting in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 1. So you can follow along with me or on the screen if you like. But in Acts 1.1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, 
He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And that's where Jesus had been crucified, uh, died within the tomb for three days, and then resurrected. And then for 40 days, he walked around talking to people, interacting with people to prove the fact that he resurrected. It says there, appeared to them over a period of 40 days, spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is to his early disciples, his apostles. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. And then down in verse 8, he challenges them and says, But you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. So he's telling his apostles, his early disciples, that the Holy Spirit's going to come on them. And this is going to be now a different ministry than what they had in the past. When Jesus was with them, that was one kind of ministry. But now the church is beginning because up until then, they weren't really organized as a church. They were kind of learning from Jesus during these years of his ministry. But now things are going to be kind of unleashed with the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And they're going to be more outwardly focused than ever before. And so when we think about that, there are 13 presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts. 13 times people are telling someone about Christ and the good news. And so 13 times. Now, as they're telling, they're presenting the gospel 13 times. I got a quiz for you this morning. So think about this for just a minute. How many times do you think the word love appears in the book of Acts? All right, so feel free to shout it out if you think you know. Dozen times, 20 times, whatever you think. How many times do you think the word love appears in the book of Acts? This is the part where you're interactive. You can, you can say something at this point, okay? You won't get thrown out, I promise. So how many, how many times do you think the word love appears in the book of Acts? 100. All right, that's a good estimate. Any others? 150. 150? Do I have 200? I feel like I'm at auction. <laughs> Would you believe zero? The word love never appears in the book of Acts. Now, like you, that's how I felt. I was shocked. I was like, it can't be. It can't be. How can the church get started without talking about love as the first and foremost thing? And so as I thought about it, I did a little word study. What is it appears within the Bible most popularly or in the book of Acts? So in as far as word occurrences, you have Jesus Christ show up 52 or more times. That's the most popular phrase or, or words that show up. Baptism, second most popular at 21 times in the book of Acts. Faith or to believe 16 times. The law of Moses 15 times. And then Old Testament prophecy or saying the Old Testament prophecy occurs 15 times. So the most popular phrase or word within the book of Acts, more than anything else, by and large, is Jesus Christ. So I had to step back from that and think about where we are as a modern church 2,000 years later. Because as I travel around in churches a lot, I hear a lot about love, which is good, because the church is about love. But, you know, I began to think about if an early disciple came back today from that early church and took a look at what we were doing and maybe said, you know, love's important, but first and foremost, paramount among everything is Christ. And so there's even some fringe elements of the church out there, believe it or not today, that kind of push love over everything and say, we just got to love one another. And it doesn't matter what you believe. There are many truths and many paths 
to heaven. There's some churches that teach that, believe it or not, because they don't want to offend anybody. So they say, we just want to love one another and that'll, we'll all work, it'll all work out. But that's not the picture we get in the early church. I want to say that again. That's not the picture in the first century. In the first century, the picture was they were preaching and teaching Christ before everything else. Now, let's, let's understand the context. If you're talking about Jesus, you are talking about love, are you not? Because that's the whole purpose of Jesus coming to the earth to give himself as a sacrifice for us out of love, right? So if you're talking about Christ, you're talking about love. But they didn't talk about love and then Christ. They talked about Christ as the example of supreme love and how that translates and connects with me and my life in real terms. So, you know, the very first gospel sermon, Acts chapter 2, Peter's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus the whole sermon long. That's the first sermon that anybody preaches on the day of Pentecost. And so his first topic and his last topic and all the topics in between are about Jesus. And so to me, what strikes me there is that they were not afraid about telling people they need Christ in their lives. And I wonder if after 2,000 years, we've kind of wrangled with that. And in a society that says, hey, you better not offend people. You better not tell them that something's the only way that they can go, that we try to love our way into people's lives and in that essence, um, maybe dilute the power and effectiveness of Christ first and foremost. You hear what I'm saying? So, for example, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now think about that. Did they offend Jews? You better believe it. Did they confound Gentiles? You better believe it. But they still talked about Christ, didn't they? <laughs> That's the funny thing. They, they weren't afraid. They didn't pull any punches. They still said, hey, he's still the Savior of the world. He's still the light of the world. And it's incumbent upon us as his messengers to tell you the truth. And so, guys, I think it's important for us to kind of step back and make sure that when we're trying to reach people, we're reaching people first and foremost with Christ. Because they started with Christ, the middle of the message was about Christ, and the end of the message was about Christ. And it's not wrong to love people and extend to people and serve people, but they better understand the reason we're doing it is why? Because of Christ. You know, I've, I've said this at my own church. We do a lot of programming that invites people to 840 Woodstock Road, Virginia Beach, Virginia. And we're eager about getting people in the doors at 840 Woodstock Road, Virginia Beach, Virginia. But the thing we have to be cautious about is getting them to 840 Woodstock Road, Virginia Beach, Virginia doesn't get them to heaven. What gets them to heaven is accepting Christ and being buried with him. And let us be careful that our message, because you can invite somebody to 2930 Middle Road, and that's good, we should, but let's not leave out Christ, right? And you would think it's understood, but it's easy to be diluting that message if we're not careful. So it's just a caution that I would share with us today, taken right out of basically what they were doing in the first century in the book of Acts. Um, one of the things that I wanted to read out of Acts chapter 4, a passage by which, again, how important the part of Christ was to these early disciples. Here's an instance where Peter and John actually healed a man, and they healed him in the name of Christ. And 
they were preaching and teaching Christ. And I tell you what, they were, they were getting under the skin of the, the Jewish leadership. And so Jewish leaders brought them in and beat them and said, hey, don't do that anymore. <laughs> we don't want you talking about this, this Jesus. But notice in, in chapter 4, verse 13, when they saw the courage um, of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. And I apologize, the, I don't have this for the slides, I don't think. So they noticed they were fishermen. They were unschooled, ordinary men, but they were, they were preaching about Jesus. And that really sort of struck the leaders of the church. These guys hadn't been trained. They didn't know what they were doing. But yet people are coming to them in droves to follow Jesus. And they didn't like that. So in verse 17, they told them, you need to stop this. Uh, they needed to stop it from spreading, they said. And any further among people, we must warn these men not to speak in the name of Jesus. So verse 18, they called him in. And they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John said to them, and listen to this, this is the point of this whole part. They said, judge for yourselves whether, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. You see, they were, they were admonished, they were beaten, they were embarrassed, they were, did everything they could to them, try to get them to stop talking about Jesus. But they said, guys, we can't help but talk about Jesus because that's our mission. And so again, a lesson for the modern church, let's not leave Christ out of our mission. Let's make sure that first and foremost, in the middle, in the beginning, in the end, everything we're doing, we're reminding, about, reminding people, pointing people to Christ. So a second thing that I think comes out of the book of Acts, one, they were talking about Christ first and foremost in everything they did. But secondly, diversity was important to the early church. It is a book about evangelism. They were reaching the lost. I mean, what's so compelling of a story is Saul was the chief prosecutor of the church. He was, he was grabbing Christians and throwing them in jail as quickly as he could. And we read about his conversion to Christ. The chief prosecutor of the church becomes the chief missionary of the church. Isn't that amazing? When you see a man transformed from hating the church to loving the church, to trying to destroy Christ, to promoting Christ. I mean, that's an amazing transformation of Saul who would now become Paul. And guess what? He writes all those letters out of the New Testament. And so it's an amazing transformation of a person. And as he becomes the great missionary, he goes all throughout the known world at that time talking about Christ. In fact, it's a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1-8. We read it earlier, but Jesus told him, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And so that's why the church today has a missionary emphasis. That's why we strive to have missions and send people all over the world with the great and good news of Christ. But listen, this is the thing that kind of nags me a little bit when I read the book of Acts. When I read the book of Acts, the one thing that they saw when they saw people, when they were out and they would see people, there's only one distinction they would make when they saw a person. They didn't think about whether he was rich or poor. They didn't think whether he was black, brown, or white. They didn't look at him as far as social economic status. They didn't look at him as far as whether he's an official or he was a poor beggar. The one distinction, listen, the one distinction the early disciples made when they saw a person was this one distinction. 
whether they were lost or whether they were saved. Now let that sink in for a minute. Because I'll tell you, I'm preaching to myself as much as anything. Because when you're out in society and you're bumping into people, there's an easy default to try to put people into groups or categories or divisions. I mean, Lord knows we're in a divided country today, are we not? And if that's one of Satan's goals to define us and divide us by segmenting and going to our separate groups and corners and I'm for this and I'm for that and I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican or I'm this or I'm that, boy, Satan's having a heyday with us, isn't he? And again, I go back to the book of Acts because they were not looking at Jew or Gentile. They were not looking at rich or poor. They were not looking at uh, black or white. They only looked at a distinction of is this person saved or are they lost? And if they're lost, we need to tell them about Christ. And friends, that's really looking through the lens of, of God's eyes, isn't it? Because that's how God sees us. Just that simply. Are we saved or are we not? You know, when's the last time we had that kind of vision? Think about it. When is the last time you had that kind of vision when you were bumping into people out on the street or in a, a marketplace or sitting across the table at work? When's the last time we looked at people as if, are they lost or are they saved? Do they know Christ? Is his graceful power in their lives? That's, that's a good question to ask. You know, when Paul ran into people, he ran into a Philippian jailer when he was in jail. First thing he told him was about Christ. He ran into a woman by the name of Lydia down by the river in the marketplace. The first thing he told her about was Christ. Uh, Philip ran into the Ethiopian eunuch, an Ethiopian official high up in the government in Ethiopia in a chariot. First thing he told him about was Christ. Beggar by the road that Peter and John were going to the temple, and the first thing they told him about was Christ. So time and time again, those early Christians were more concerned about a person's spiritual status than anything else. Are they lost or are they saved? Now, what's interesting is it had a transformative effect upon the church. It was the fastest growth the church had ever seen in that first century than ever before. In Acts chapter 2, Listen to what basically was transpiring as they were out doing this type of evangelism. In Acts 2.42, we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which was communion, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread or participated in the Lord's Supper in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Then notice the last verse. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They loved one another. There was a very loving spirit and fellowship there. But recognized they were focused on winning people to Christ. And it mattered on Mondays. It mattered on Wednesdays. It mattered on Saturday nights. And it mattered on Sunday mornings. That they had a lifestyle of reaching people who were outside the grace of Christ. I pray today that we all can have the same vision that they had. Of whether or not someone's lost or whether or not someone is saved. So the two things we've seen so far is that they, they, when we look at the book of Acts, those early Christians were doing was that they put Christ first and foremost. 
Secondly, they practiced and, and looked for diversity, and they valued people basically for their soul's value, that they didn't care about their status or their color or their class. They looked at people whether they were lost or saved, and so that added a great diversity to the church. And the third thing I want to look at real quick is something that we see a lot of in the book of Acts, and it's something they preached about often, and it was the idea of the repentance. Now, repentance is something, it's kind of a 10-cent term. We use it some, but probably not a lot today. Some churches may not use it at all. But it's a very important teaching within the New Testament. In the book of Acts, they were talking about it a lot. Uh, one verse I wanted to look at real quick is Acts chapter 17. This is just one example of where Paul is talking to some Gentiles in a foreign city. And in this foreign city, he's trying to talk to them about God. But in chapter 17, verse 29, he says, and, and the one thing about these, these foreign Gentiles, they had a lot of idols. So he's trying to convince them that the idols were worthless. In verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like something that's made out of gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. Because he set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Now, repentance was a common theme when, when these early disciples and, and apostles were teaching and preaching. They were talking about repentance. But I'm not so certain we understand the concept of repentance today. To repent, listen, to repent means a change of behavior. Repeat that with me. Change of behavior. That's what repentance means. It meant it then, that's what it means now. And really, if you think about a compass being 360 degrees, what it means is I'm going in this direction, and we've used the phrase, I do a 180. That means I'm turning around 180 degrees, I'm going in the opposite direction, right? And that's really what repentance means. If I'm doing something that displeases God, that dishonors God, if I'm sinning against God, then I want to do a 180. I want to turn from that behavior and I want to go in the opposite direction towards God, right? That's the idea of repentance. But today I'm not so sure we understand and teach and embrace that because, again, we've got a modern church today collectively around the world that sometimes even on the fringe is saying love is enough. And despite my actions and my impurities, God will still accept me because of love. But that's not what the first century was teaching. They were teaching that your actions matter, and that my actions matter, and that when we're defiling God, we're disappointing God, we're dishonoring Him, we need to do a 180 and turn to Him and repent. That's what they would say in the first century. The best example I can come up with of, of repentance, kind of, as far as a change of behavior, something from my own life years ago when, when essentially I was... Um, uh, I was in a preaching ministry down in Virginia Beach, and I wear, I've worn contact lenses for decades and had a lot of success wearing contacts, but I went through a spell where I really my eyes were really bothering me, and I went to an eye doctor, and the eye doctor looked at my eyes and said, they're not infected, but they're inflamed, and it could lead to an infection, so you need to do some things uh, to correct this so that it will basically alleviate the inflammation in your eyes. So she said, I'm going to give you this regimen that you're going to have to follow for the next week, um, and you're going to have to do it, and basically it'll clear everything up. And so she said, so here's a little bottle of medicine, and I want you to put one drop in it in the morning and one drop in each eye morning and night. So 
twice a day. I said, okay, I got it. Then she gave me another little bottle. She said, now this, these drops, I want you to put in twice, three times a day. So morning, noon, and night, put two drops in both eyes. I said, okay, got it. She said, and then these little pads, I've got a special little soap on them. I want you to twice a day, rub these on the lids of your eyes and basically clean them very thoroughly, again, to prevent it for infection and things like that. I said, okay, I got that twice a day. So then I want you to take a warm washcloth, which is as warm as temperature as you can. I want you to lay down for about 15 minutes and place that washcloth over your eyes and just let that kind of soak in three times a day for 15 minutes. So she gave me all this stuff, got everything down. I went back for my follow-up about a week later and she said, well, let me take a look at your eyes. She said, I don't see as much improvement as I thought that I would anticipate. She said, did you understand the instructions? I said, yes, I understood the instructions. She gave me this little bottle, one drop twice a day, this little bottle, two drops, three times a day, these little wipes to clean the lenses twice a day, and then the washcloth, warm washcloth, lay down 15 minutes, three times a day, got it. She said, well, you understood it. I'm not sure why it didn't work. She said, well, it didn't work because I didn't do any of that. <laughs> I mean, who's got time to do all that stuff, right? Um, and be gainfully employed. I mean, I don't have time to stop and do all that stuff. So there was no surprise. There was no change. My eyes were just as bad as they were. And it was only until I was willing to embrace change of my action that my eyes improved. So she, of course, was disgusted with me and sent me on my way. But think about it for just a minute. Because we sing songs about holiness, we sing songs about loving God, putting Him first in our life. And the question is, do our actions match up with what we're singing and what we're saying? Because, you know, when God told, or Jesus told that parable about the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand, Jesus' distinction between those two guys was this man, the one who built it on rock, has put my words into action. He's been obedient. That's what Jesus said. That's not my words, that's Jesus. So he had repented, done a 180, changed his behavior, and put the words into action. This other man had not. So where are you today? Are you building on rock? Or are you building on sand? Because the difference is if you're repenting, changing a behavior, and making your actions match up with what the Bible teaches us. I fear we're not teaching repentance and living out repentance enough. I pray that we're not casual Christians. I pray that we're authentic, practicing repentance like that early church. Well, there's three things we've looked at in the book of Acts then. They taught Christ first and foremost. They taught diversity, and they taught repentance. You know, I want to close with just the idea that um, back in the 1980s, I attended the funeral, two funerals of, for my grandparents. My grandfather and grandmother passed away with just a year or so of one another back in the 1980s. And I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. That's where I get this southern twang. So apologize for that once. But anyway, uh, hopefully you've been able to understand it. But um, so grew up in Atlanta. My, my grandparents passed away and and. They were buried in a northern part of Georgia, a little town called Buford, Georgia. And that's where future past generations of Puckets were from. I had, we had not really gone there because we lived in Atlanta all my life. And my grandparents hadn't really even lived in Buford. They had lived in Atlanta for a long time. It was previous generations of Puckets that came from Buford. Well, 
But there was still a family cemetery there attached to a church that apparently Puckett's had attended years ago. And so only twice I'd been to this church that, for that funeral, for my grandfather's funeral, for my grandmother's funeral. And I very vivid remembrance of this church because it's a huge, big, red brick building with these tall, white columns and these just a mountain of steps leading up. Just, you just take forever to get these steps. And the sweeping porch on this huge old church. You'd walk down the aisles and it was old wooden floors. And you'd hear the creaking and groaning as you'd walk down this hundred plus year old church building. And I remember going to my, again, my grandparents' funerals there. And the cemetery was right next door. It was right adjacent. So we walked right out in the cemetery and uh, laid them to rest out there. And... I had never been back, and so five or six years ago, I decided, you know, I was in North Georgia. I said, I'm going to go by Buford and see if I can find and, and visit my grandparents' graves. So I found myself to Buford. I drove up and down the main drag of Buford, where I remembered the church to be, could not find it anywhere. I looked and looked and looked and looked, could not find it. I even went to a fire station. I asked some guys there, said, hey, do you know anything about this church? They knew nothing about it. Stopped and asked a police officer. Police officer, he knew nothing about it. So I actually came back a couple of times from them when I found myself in Georgia. Over, over a course of about two years, never could find that cemetery. And so just so happened for CFR, I was visiting another church for a, a gathering of preachers. And in that group in Georgia, uh, some other place in Georgia, there was a guy who was retired from Buford, Georgia. So I thought, hey, I'm going to ask him. So I asked him. He knew the church I was talking about. And he said that church moved and they tore the building down. And in fact, the city bought all that land and turned it into a huge municipal center for the city of Buford and that whole region. And they even bought the cemetery and they turned it into a municipal cemetery and they put a large wrought iron fence around it. So it's understanding you wouldn't recognize any of that landscape now. So he told me right where to go and lo and behold, I went right to it later within the course of about a week. And I walked through the gates of that cemetery and lo and behold, after looking grave by grave, finally found the graves of my grandparents, James Tyler Puckett and Goldia May Puckett. And so I was struck by how I'd lost it and I'd found it, you know, and how easily just in the 1980s, it wasn't that long ago and it should have just still been there. And I was struck by the fact how easy it is to lose our way or lose how we ought to be or, or to lose some of our history if we're not careful. But I'm grateful that God has given us a remembrance of what the early church was like in the first century. And I pray today we use that roadmap, those instructions, that template for the early church for the template we use as a church ourselves. That our church is always his church. And our ways are always his ways. That we're living in a way that honors him. And if a disciple from the first century dropped out of the sky today, he wouldn't see much difference. He'd see us, yeah, he'd see cars and be struck by electricity as far as, wow, this is really different. And we're using instruments and screens and we've got buildings and things like that. But we're still the church. That there wouldn't be any surprises there. I pray that would be true. Maybe you've come today never accepting Christ. I'd encourage you to make that decision today. Maybe you're, you're not a member of a church family. I'd encourage you, New Life, be a great home to meet and to worship and fellowship with like-minded Christians. If you need to make that decision today, won't you come?